starting at verse 1 and going to verse 10. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Billah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he had made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around, around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, you intend to reign over us. Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream. He told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matters in mind. You know, so we have been in Genesis a long time. I just want to admit that. Uh, I'm sure some of you are like, has he always been doing Genesis? I don't remember a time before. But we are actually, with the introduction of Joseph, we're actually at nearing the end, right? Because uh, when, when Joseph exits the stage. Uh, the curtain closes on Genesis as a whole. So it's, there's not much left after this. Uh, and it's a good passage for today. After all, uh, it's Easter. As Ben was saying, it's a great day for family gatherings. And this passage reminds us that no matter how poorly your family gathering goes, it's not as messed up as Jacob's family. Jacob's family is a mess. I mean, you just heard, you know, the reading, and you picked up that tension, but you may be thinking, oh, it's not that bad, Joseph's a little annoying with his dreams. But it is. It's bad. It's real bad. Uh, and as with a lot of family tension, what you're seeing here reflects just some of the stuff that's been sort of burning and churning and, uh, for over years. I mean, the family is a mess. I mean, first of all, while these sons share a father, he fathered them with four different mothers. First of all, you've got Rachel, number, or Rachel wife number two. And I mention her as number two because she was supposed to be wife number one. But Uncle, Uncle Laban pulled the old bait and switch and stuck him with her sister Leah instead of Rachel. And Rachel turns out to be a bit like her aunt Rebecca, Jacob's mother, and uh, Jacob's grandma, Sarah, because she cannot get pregnant. And this creates tension between her and wife number one, her sister Leah. Uh, because Leah has like the Joe DiMaggio of wombs. 
Whenever it gets to the plate, it's going to knock one out. Boom, boom, boom. You got three sons, just like that. Then boom, a fourth. And the problem is, though, that she and her DiMaggio womb spend a lot of time on the bench because Jacob likes Rachel. So, wife number one is fertile but abandoned. Wife number two gets all the attention but isn't fertile and ticked. There's one point where she says to Jacob, she says, give me a child or I will die. And Jacob says to her, hey, look, that's not my problem. Uh, Your problem is God. Real nice, real nice move, Jacob. Or, uh, yeah, Jacob, yeah, take it up with God. She doesn't take it up with God. Instead, what she does is she sort of pulls a play out of her grandma-in-law's playbook and says, here, sleep with my maidservant. And he does, and it works twice uh, Rachel names the second of the two uh, Naphtali, which means my struggle, which seems sort of a strange name to give to the child you did not carry to term or uh, birth. Why my struggle? Well, according to the text, it's a little bit of trash talk on uh, Rachel's part. She says, I have struggled with my sister and I have won. All right, great. Uh, and Leah hears that, well, I'm, I, that's not working for me. So she gives Jacob her maidservant. And boom, boom, two more kids. Uh, for you keeping score, uh, that's eight. And she names these, uh, one, the first one she names Good Fortune, Gad, and the other, Happy, Asher. But whatever joy those kids brought Leah is, is uh, temporary because uh, the feud goes on. And, uh, and like all great family feuds, the stupidest thing can trigger uh, a, a conflict. We're told that Leah's son, Reuben, finds some mandrakes. And Auntie Rachel, ooh, can I have your mandrakes? And Leah is outraged. At, and she, she says, is it not enough that you stole my husband? Now you would take my son's mandrakes? Which is an awesome line. I'm sure we've all had an opportunity to say something like that. Uh, no, don't let take our mandrakes. But then Rachel's like, hey, look, you can have Jacob tonight if I can have those mandrakes. And then Leah's like, deal. And tracks down Jacob and says to him, and this is the quote, I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. Great line. <laughs> and, you know, if I'm Jacob, I might have some questions, right? What? Uh, since when is uh, Rachel pimping me out for produce? Uh, but sure enough, uh, he goes. He does no complaints. He does it. And now, the thing, some commentators say, well, look, what's going on here is mandrakes. I think this is true in Harry Potter, right? Mandrakes actually are little uh, people that, they, that grow, right? Isn't that right? You're my resource here, Jen. Yes, yes. good. You're right. I, you've read them. I've not read them. But yeah, mandrakes are, but mandrakes actually can look like, if you do a Google search, they look like, they can look like little people, uh, men specifically. And, and so there's this thought, well, maybe there's, 
think they think, oh, this is a fertility thing. She wants these mandrakes so she can get pregnant. She's got the long game going here. Okay, you can have Jacob tonight, but I'm going to have these mandrakes, and then I'm going to get pregnant. Anyway, it's also interesting and worth noting that here in this, in this conflict, uh, that Reuben is involved. Uh, you know, because it reminds me, you know, when, the, when you go through a divorce, the courts require you to take this, these seminars uh, about parenting co-parenting as after divorce. And the point that's emphasized over and over in that presentation is keep your kids out of your conflicts. Well, here's, here's Reuben coming in. Hey, look what I found. And suddenly he's brought right into all this ugly family dysfunction. He's seeing the resentment between, between his mom, his aunt, I uh, see his mom's desperation to get uh, his dad's attention. But anyway, it works because, of course, Leah pops out, son number 10, and uh, daughter, the first daughter. Uh, so we're at, I think it's like 12 to nothing now and for, for Rachel. Uh, the maidservants and her sister are just way out ahead. But she finally puts one on the board, Joseph, and then she puts a second, and she dies giving birth to the second one, Benjamin. Now, also, let's go back even further. Recall the home that Jacob grew up in. Jacob grew up in a home where he was his mom's favorite, his brother was his dad's favorite. He's used to you know, having favorites. And so, of course, he's going to pick his favorites. Uh, it's normal to him. And Rachel's, Rachel's offspring would have been his favorite regardless. But with her dead, these two boys are, her only, are, are his only connection, living connection to her. And one of them is connected to her death. So it makes sense that Joseph is sort of the golden child for Jacob. But let's imagine what that would be like for the other 10. Witnessing all that tension, internalizing all that rejection, knowing that you could never measure up, uh, it had to have taken a toll. Uh, Most of us, when we were in school and were learning about World War II and the cause of World War II, I think a pretty common explanation is that part of what started the ball rolling towards World War II were the terms of surrender from World War I. Germany felt humiliated by them. And so, of course, they are drawn to someone who insisted that they were the superior race. It boosted their sense of self-worth. But what to do with all the, the rage, all the resentment that comes as a result of feeling humiliated? Well, Hitler also provided a target for that. I bring that up because there's another passage that we skipped over. We skipped over a passage that has to do with that one daughter, Dinah. She is assaulted. Of course, in an ancient culture, an assault like that would mean sort of she was ruined. No man would want her, right? Uh, But in her case, someone does want her, wants to marry her. It is her assailant wants to marry her, who is a Hivite prince. And her brothers say, 
yeah, sure. You can marry our sister. That's fine. But only if your dad instructs everybody, all, all you Hivite men, to be circumcised. That's the deal. All right. And on the day that the Hivite men uh, are incapacitated because of their uh, having kept their end of the bargain, well, these brothers of second-class mothers, they come into town and avenge their sister. Uh, Simeon and Levi kill all the men. And then the other brothers come in and plunder, uh, take the livestock and the goods and, and, and the women. So there's, you can see why Jacob might be a little reluctant to have Joseph spend too much time with his brothers. I mean, there's they're, they're some rough dudes. And, but, uh, you could, but you can't, what's difficult to understand is why Joseph would still feel entitled to, to rat, rat those brothers of his out, given... Uh, you know, he could get himself in a lot of trouble. You're like, don't you know what your brothers are capable of? But anyway, he alienates himself further by telling on him for something. Uh, and then, but the real sign of some obliviousness is this garment that Jacob gives to Joseph. Uh, I think our translation says it's an ornate uh, garment. Um, Many of us probably grew up understanding this is the coat of many colors. Other uh, translators call it a, a coat with, of long sleeves. The reason there's all this difference in interpretation is because the word that's used there is really rare. It doesn't get, it's only used one other time in the Old Testament. Now what's interesting about the other time it's used is that they're quite sure what it means there. It is a princess dress. It is a dress worn by uh, a daughter of King David to indicate her status. There are some commentators that say, well, maybe, maybe that's what this is. Uh, maybe, uh, you know, maybe here you have Jacob. Remember, Jacob identified with his mother. He didn't like, he, he doesn't, he already uh, doesn't identify with gender norms, right? Doesn't go out hunting with his brother. He likes to cook. Uh, so maybe in addition to seeing his uh, deceased wife in uh, Joseph, he also sees a bit of himself. Uh, and, you know, you know, he's daddy's little princess. And who knows? I think what is interesting about that interpretation, you could see where that would also, that might also fuel some of the resentment toward Joseph. Um, you know, if you've ever participated in a uh, trans day of remembrance, there, every November, what, those services kind of culminate with the reading of the names of trans people who have been murdered. Uh, and the majority of those names that are, are listed are the names of trans women. Uh, apparently, some find that justification for violence. Um, and so maybe it's part of the justification that these brothers have for the sort of violence they do and eventually do to their brother Joseph. Anyway, that's Jacob's family. And it's important to keep in mind that it's not only Jacob's family, it's Jacob's other name, Israel. So that's Israel's family. 
and that these 12 brothers are basically the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they're a mess. So now you put yourself in God's position. You're looking down at this. This is the beginning of the people you promised to bless. This is, it's through these people that you've promised not only to bless them, but to bless the whole world through them. Clearly, they could use some divine intervention. Well, God sort of intervenes. God looks down and says, you know what would help here? A dream. A dream with a clear message. No, wait, wait, wait. Two dreams with clear messages. You know, if you just get the one, it can seem like a fluke, but a second one, then, then they'll get the message. And what will be the point of this dream? Let's see. Uh, and how will it help to overcome the family dysfunction? Let's see. I know. Let's make it about worship, bowing down before Joseph. Those gaping wounds that these brothers have from the fact that they never will measure up won't ever have their father's approval the way Joseph and Benjamin do. Well, these dreams are not going to heal those wounds. They are going to rub salt in those wounds. They're a big squeeze of lemon juice right into them. It is such a dysfunctional family. It is such a broken world. So full of hurting people who lash out at one another. It was then, it is now. And sometimes it seems as though God doesn't care. And sometimes it even seems as if God makes it worse. Because it was a broken, hurting world that Jesus was born into. God's beloved son. This ultimate act of divine intervention was supposed to address the wounds He was supposed to fulfill the promise of blessing to God's people and to the whole world. And like Joseph's dreams, what this act of divine intervention did was to expose the wound. It was lemon juice in that wound. The people end up feeling so betrayed by Jesus, by his failure to make things right, do what they wanted him to do, and so they lash out. He became the target of all their resentment, all their shame, all their rage, and he took it. He carried it with him to the cross. You know, Joseph's dreams do not come up specifically again in the story, but they are fulfilled. The moment they are fulfilled is so different than what you would have anticipated in this chapter. It's not a moment that reinforces feelings of shame and inferiority or on Joseph's part it doesn't you know, reinforce feelings of privilege and superiority as, as we'll see when we get there. It's this moment of grace and awe. It's a moment of forgiveness and wonder. It is a moment not unlike this moment, this Easter morning.
The women go to the tomb expecting to mourn, to feel the wounds inflicted on them and the one that they loved. The wounds inflicted by a world so full anger and shame. But that's not what happens. They meet Jesus on the road, fall at his feet in awe and wonder. You know, we may, we may want a God who makes things easy, who saves us from discomfort, who maintains the status quo, even if the status quo is full of dysfunction and denial. The problem is that God is not as committed to those things as we are. God is okay with stirring the pot, showing us what we might prefer to ignore. God makes trouble. It's annoying. We may not know how God is going to get there, but God shows us again and again where it's going. It ends in blessing. It ends in awe and wonder and grace and forgiveness. Our great hope is this, that in the end, every story, every story is an Easter story. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.